Hello, flight instructors and NAFI members. This is John Niehaus, Director of Program Development for the National Association of Flight Instructors, and I'd like to welcome you back to another edition of the NAFI More Right Rudder podcast, the podcast for flight instructors on the go. Now, I uh, am really excited for this one. It's actually a uh, conversation presentation that uh, somebody that you know and I know and I think we all know, it's John and Martha King. Um, a while back, John and Martha were uh, kind enough to do a presentation for us. And uh, basically, the uh, general idea of it was to kind of talk about um, how aviation has developed a vocabulary about safety, but uh, it can kind of be off-putting. So the Kings wanted to uh, discuss with flight instructors the ways of being a leader and uh, changing the vocabulary so it's more welcoming and that people understand it and sort of take it a little more seriously than just saying, hey, don't do this. Um, in a way that only the kings can. They're the, the best in the business when it comes to uh, um, presentations and these kinds of things. And uh, they've been long, long, long time friends of uh, NAFI. And so <laughs> we kind of have to make sure that the King Schools um, company is the sponsor of this episode. Um, King, like I said, is a longtime supporter of NAFI and our members. Our members have exclusive access to a bunch of free courses um, because of uh, their kind support. Things like uh, practical risk management for pilots and surviving your most feared flying emergencies, maneuvers for the commercial pilot and CFI. NAFI members also get a 20% discount off of all King School products. And, and this is probably the best part of all of this, NAFI members have exclusive access to the NAFI King School Scholarship. Um, this scholarship is towards either an initial CFI rating or an additional CFI rating. So you want to get your MEI, your seaplane instructor, your, your double I, whatever you want to do. Um, and we give away that every year at Sun and Fun. So um, we've already done it for 2021, of course, but uh, we are... Always looking for new applicants for uh, the next year. So 2022 could be your year. So thank you so much to King Schools for everything. Thank you to the Kings for putting this presentation on. And thank you for listening. Uh, I do hope you enjoy it. And uh, if you do, we'd love to have you as a member if you're not already. Um, so uh, go to www.nafinet.org and uh, sign up if you could. And if you haven't checked us out on our social media platforms, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. Just look for uh, either NAFI Instructors or NAFI or NAFI CFI. Um, we're kind of all over the place, and we try to post uh, fun and interesting content that uh, you'll either learn something from or hopefully just enjoy. Um, we also have a really cool page on YouTube, so check that out as well. Uh, uh, but without further ado... Um, Here's the presentation from John and Martha King. Well, hello, fellow pilot. I'm Martha King. And hello, fellow flight instructors. In case there's any confusion about this, I'm John King. And we are standing up. <laughs> 
You know, welcome to Straight Talk about Aviation Safety, and we want to say particularly thanks to NAFI for making this venue available to us, and also thank you for including us both in this presentation. You know, Martha and I have been best buddies for over 50 years now. For uh, over 50 years, we've been flying airplanes together. Uh, for the last 30 years, we've been flying airplanes that require two pilots. And we just absolutely love it because it's some kind of uh, uh, ballet that we dance together. We think it's just absolutely beautiful. Uh, so we, we do a lot of stuff together and we're thrilled to be doing this together. Um, so I want to I want to say that a lot of people comment about Martha and I flying together, and I explain she's only a little bit better pilot than I am, uh, and uh, they say I'm lucky that Martha will fly with me, and I say Lucky, what are you talking about, Lucky? She wants to fly half the time. It costs us twice as much to keep current, and and she's got an opinion about everything. You know, John likes to think that their relationship exemplifies that old saying that. Behind every successful man stands a great woman. Yeah, got that great. Uh, you got it right, Martha. That's exactly how I feel about it. What he doesn't realize is the true saying is that in front of every great woman stands some guy without a clue who's blocking her view. <laughs> well... Uh, you know, honest discussions about safety are particularly important for general aviation. Uh, and the reason that they're important for general aviation is that our accident rate is not near as good as it should be. It's a lot worse than the airlines. It's worse than driving. It's on a par with motorcycles. We need to fix that. And we've got some ideas this evening about ways that we think you can help the community fix that, and we think this discussion can save some lives. You know, we've developed these thoughts we're about to share with you uh, from 45 years of teaching pilots and seeing the results. <clears throat> and, and we think that uh, discussions about safety often aren't as helpful or as insightful as they can be. Actually, our current way of discussing safety can often be counterproductive and so we're going to talk about why it might be counterproductive and how we can do better you know very often the uh, administrator of the FAA or the Secretary of Transportation will get up after an accident and assure us by saying things like safety is our number one priority there can be no compromise with safety well those are very comforting things to hear but the problem is they aren't and can't be true because it's just impossible to do anything in an aircraft without compromising safety. You can't start an engine without compromising safety. So if you move an aircraft from one point to another, that confirms that moving the aircraft ranks ahead of safety. You know, it's, it's like a ship is always safest in the harbor, but that's not what ships are for. So it would always be safer in an airplane to stay put. And so doing anything in an aircraft requires a trade-off between the desired result and some level of risk. 
and it's and, and that trade-off varies depending on the circumstances, but there is always that trade-off. And the trade-off depends in part on the EQ, if you will, of the pilot. In other words, the emotional uh, intelligence of the pilot and how they make their decisions about giving up things that they want uh, because they have to manage risk. Now, we have a uh, uh, one administrator a few years back said that there can only be one level of safety. There had been an accident in a small airplane, and he wanted to ensure people who flew in uh, commuters that uh, uh, to assure them that that we're going to we're not going to allow uh, a lower level of safety for commuters. But the problem is, you can't just have one level of safety. It can't be true, and the reason it can't be true is safety costs money and requires heavier equipment. You know, a, a, a Piper Cub will never be as safe as a as a seven forty seven. It's just not possible. And, and the problem with all of these discussions that are intellectually dishonest is that they tend to take up the space for thoughtful conversation. They substitute for thoughtful conversation. So therefore, we don't have as thoughtful and as reasoned uh, uh, discussions as we should have on the subject. Uh, Martha and I have a friend who uh, used to be chairman of the Civil Aviation Safety Authority. That's the Australian equivalent of the rulemaking part of the FAA. And he was the equivalent of the administrator of the FAA, but he was a general aviation pilot. He was also a provocative person and he scared people. And, and, he, and the reason he scared people is that he people wish to say there could be uh, safety. He used to talk about, he, he wanted people to know that safety costs money. You can only have affordable safety. Uh, you, you, if it's, if it's not affordable, people aren't going to do it and you're not going to have the safety. So he steered people away from disingenuous talk about safety, he advocated what they call affordable safety and, and get the idea of safety costs money bothered people. They went to, people often will say that, uh, uh, that, that you can't put a price on safety. The answer is you can put a price on safety because safety costs money. Now, one of the examples that he would use often is he would be talking about the Australian outback and he would be saying, look, if you make it too expensive for people to travel from one place to another in a small airplane, they're going to drive instead and they're going to have uh, a lot of problems on the roads. Uh, if they're in a commuter, they're going to be safer than they would be on driving. And so we need to remember that it has to be, safety has to be affordable or we're just shooting ourselves in the foot. Um, now, folks, this is a, a good spot. We've said some provocative things already. Is anybody who, who would like to have a question or wants to argue with something Martha might have said? John, you haven't let me say hardly anything. Yeah, but it's worth arguing with. Uh, <laughs> uh, JD, uh, do we have any comments or questions yet? Yes, Martha, we do have a comment. The comment is from Santosh, who says, Part 91 general aviation is seven times more dangerous than driving according to his FAA FISDO safety team. Uh, we agree with that totally, and the seven times more dangerous than driving puts it, as I said a little bit earlier, on a par with motorcycles. It's, uh, we, Martha and I have been through those numbers, and it's, we're talking about the fatality rate per mile when we talk about uh, it's seven times, you're seven times more likely to be involved in a fatality per mile uh, 
in an aircraft, a general aviation aircraft, than you are a car. So we're talking about the fatality rate per mile. Now, and airlines the, are fabulously safe. I mean, it's been ages since we've had a, a major airline accident uh, with any fatalities in Well, the we've had the two, the, the, the 737 uh, MAX, uh, so it's not ages anymore. Well, in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, okay. In the U.S. Okay, I'll let you get away with that. Well, okay. thank you. You're thank welcome. You. But okay. so that is, airline travel in the U.S. is much safer than driving, but GA uh, travel is not. And... and We'll never get there to where the airlines are because we can't afford, either from a weight standpoint or a cost standpoint, the kind of safety uh, equipment uh, and, and, and backing in terms of the whole infrastructure that airlines have. But we can get better than we are, and we need to. J.D., do we have any other questions? I do. I have a question here from Brett, uh, who said he'd be very interested in hearing your guys' thoughts on the top three things to do or not to do in order to be safer general aviation pilots? Well, actually, we're going to cover that. Uh, we're going to give some and, tips and, and, and some and, tools. And, and basically, uh, the first one is to be risk aware uh, and and be willing to, to be willing to give up on what you want to do uh, in, in order to mitigate risk. It, it, we're we're going to talk about goal orientation as we go along you know, here. We, we got a whole bunch of goal-oriented people here, and goal orientation is a wonderful thing in most of life. But in an aircraft, being too goal-oriented can be risky because you, you hate to give up on a goal, and therefore you'll take risks to not give up on a goal. Let's go ahead and talk about this. Okay. Continue a little bit for a while well, here, Martha. One of the problems of the way safety advice is given a lot in general aviation is that people will tend to talk down to the pilots that they're working with. Uh, and and the, just the language and the vocabulary will often come across as being preachy, being smug, being superior. Uh, you don't know as much as I do about being a safe pilot. Um, and, and that can feel like to the learning pilot or even just an active pilot who's getting feedback from somebody, it can feel demeaning and offensive, it, like, unwarranted criticism. And one of the problems with a, the way a lot of safety advice is given in general aviation is it doesn't give really guidance and it doesn't give standards and we need that. The problem is that the vocabulary that's used a lot of times when we're trying to convey stuff about safety, and, and John will have some thoughts about that word, is um, it's not acceptable to the listener. We use terms like aeronautical decision-making and, and judgment and the five hazardous attitudes. And Martha tells me I have four of the five hazardous attitudes. The only one I don't have is resignation. That's absolutely true. The, the problem with the aeronautical decision-making and judgment in the five hazardous that, that vocabulary is, again, they don't provide guidance and they don't provide standards. So aeronautical decision-making 
tends to have kind of a, 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 a smug, so like you can't make a decision right you know here you are perhaps a business executive um, certainly someone who's successful in their life if they're going to be able to uh, to go out and learn to fly or to be a pilot um, and, and it 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 leaves the feeling some of the language about aeronautical decision making that um, as John says you don't know how to make a decision and and can you visualize the 20 year old flight instructor talking to a 45 year old business owner and say today I'm going to teach you to make aeronautical decisions the point is not bad but the language the vocabulary tends to put up a barrier so that the, the message doesn't get transferred. And, and the term aeronautical decision-making tends to be reactive and implies that you come to a decision point and at that point you have to make a yes-no decision. Rather than being that reactive, our, our thought would be to be ahead of it. You don't, that you don't come to a decision point and make a decision. Also, if someone says you're a failure at aeronautical decision-making, where do you go from there? What's the guidance? What's standards are there? How is it going to help you to have someone tell you you're a failure at aeronautical decision making? So I don't think it's a particularly helpful vocabulary. Uh, and we're going to talk about what we think is a better vocabulary, particularly one that focuses on the concept of risk management. And risk management is a proactive habit of being able to identify risk and to mitigate those risks and doing it continuously as a habit in every part of your flying. So rather than getting to a kind of a decision point and making a decision, what we're saying is we should proactively practice risk management where you get ahead of and identify the risk and come up with a mitigation plan for the risk. So the whole key that we think we need to work on here is clear and honest language that's straightforward, uh, uh, that's honest and doesn't substitute uh, for a, a good vocabulary that's going to help people. So we want to give people positive guidance rather than being reactive. So that's why we think we should talk about risk management. And safety is an outcome. It's not a, re it, it's not a cause. It's, it's the result when you practice risk management. And risk management is how you get there when you're talking about safety. Um, for instance, the United States Air Force and the Civil Air Patrol, and I'm sure a whole bunch of other organizations, talk about mission first, safety always. You can't talk about it as your number one priority uh, because obviously the mission has to be number one priority in some cases, but you practice risk management while you perform that mission. The, and the that's an example of the clear and honest language we're correct, talking right. about. The mission is first, but we have to do it as safely as we possibly so can. So you do them both together at the same time right. and you practice habitual risk management. But I'm going to say this, the risks in flying, if they're left unmanaged, are unacceptable. And what I would like to do, folks, is I would like to take a poll right now, and I would like for you to uh, to go to pollev.com slant naffy. And I'm going to ask you a question. And when I ask you that question, I would like you to go to this location and answer it yes or no. So log in now on your iPhone or iPad or, or something other than, than what you're watching this webinar on to pollev.com 
facebook.com slant naffy and you'll see this identical question come up okay and, and answer he, it yes and or no. here is the question how many in this group know someone personally who was killed in a general aviation accident if you know someone who was killed personally who was killed in a general aviation accident answer yes and we're going to get the results back and uh, we'll feed them back to you but we'll take a few minutes to gather that information. while we're gathering that information i want to continue for just a little bit and i want to talk about innovations because this whole idea of our focusing on risk management is new and by definition that makes it an innovation and all innovations seem simple and obvious in hindsight. For instance, the astronauts, when they got back from the moon and flew on the airlines, had to carry their luggage because there were no wheels on luggage. We had not actually started using wheels on luggage. Now, wheels on luggage is pretty simple and obvious in hindsight almost everybody's got it now but we went for millennia we, we went for over a hundred years flying on the airlines without wheels on luggage so so uh, I'm, we're going to so talk about something and you're going to say well duh what's the big deal well that's like wheels on luggage it, it's it's going it seems simple and obvious in hindsight so let's talk about it and what we're going to talk about is risk management tools and we're going to talk about a vocabulary for situation situational awareness and with the faa uh, uh martha and i developed pave and care with a guy named roger baker who was in charge of uh safety programs for the faa and uh, pave you use for in to uh, proactively think about the risks before you go on a flight and the and the and pave stands for uh putting risks in the categories of the pilot the aircraft the environment and external pressures so and what 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 we use this for what we'd like for you to think about using this for but most importantly think about teaching your students to use is when you're planning a flight to to help them help your learning pilots look at the possible risks and put them into the categories of pilot aircraft environment and external pressures and once they've got them in those categories it will be much easier for them to assess how much risk is there and figure out figure out how to mitigate this risk so pave is basically a pre-flight planning tool that you can use with your learning pilots and putting them in the categories just helps you think of the categories of risk and it's a proactive way of thinking where the risks might be um, so uh, what you want to do is when you're doing this you're you're actively maintaining situational awareness what's going on regarding the pilot what's going on regarding the aircraft and so on once once you're airborne yeah, th yeah. then when you get airborne uh, uh, the, everything you planned on with PAVE changes because flying is dynamic. It's flying an airplane, uh, it's getting lower on fuel, over changing terrain, moving from one place to another, over changing weather with a pilot who's getting more fatigued. Everything about flying is dynamic. So immediately, as soon as you get airborne, everything starts to change. We've got C care to, to deal with this. This first C stands for the changes and care 
uh, tells you to think about the uh, consequences of those changes, the changes in your alternatives, uh, the reality, the new reality that you're in, and the and the external pressures change. It's harder to give up on a trip the closer you get to your destination. So as you go along, the uh, uh, it's harder to give up on those doing something. Those internal pressures and your own internal goal orientation gets stronger and stronger and that's where the EQ, the emotional quotient, uh, that we all need to have a, a high emotional quotient as a pilot comes in regarding how do we handle these pressures on us. JD, do we have the results from our poll yet? Yes, I do have some uh, some polling results right now. And what I'm seeing is 65% of people that have responded have said yes to that question. That they knew someone personally. Do you have the absolute numbers, how many people it is? or do you Right have now we're at 185 total people that have responded. Okay, and of those 185, how many said yes, how many said no? I could do the math. I'm just not able to do it in my head. Here, what I'm no worries, John. Um, we have 121 yes and 121. 64 no. 121 yes and 64 okay. no. Okay. So if you haven't participated in the poll yet, please go to pollev.com. You're in trouble now. <laughs> forward slant NAFI. Is it forward slant or back slant? Forward, forward slant, slant NAFI. And, okay. and enter your answer to that question, and we'll see if it changes any as we go along. Okay. And JD, do we have any um, other uh, questions or comments at this point? Uh, yes, we do, Martha. I've got uh, Robert K here who was asking, as aircraft, or he was making a comment, as aircraft are getting older, he's finding that more of these aircraft are having accidents. Well, certainly aircraft are getting older, and uh, you go to Oshkosh, and it's hard to figure out which is older, the people or the aircraft. Uh, we're all old there. Um, so uh, that's, that's, the, that's the state of general aviation. We're making new airplanes, but they're getting, uh, a lot of the airplanes around the airport are pretty old. And it just requires uh, just, just a proactive maintenance of the aircraft. You can't just be reactive about it. One of the things that gets to be a risk factor as time goes on with an aircraft is it gets cheaper and cheaper to buy, but it doesn't get cheaper to maintain. It actually gets more expensive to maintain. And what sometimes happens is someone who can afford to buy an aircraft doesn't really consider the cost of maintaining it, particularly if it's an older aircraft. And, and that can be a really bad combination. Okay, um, let's go on, Martha. Okay. Now, we talked earlier uh, that goal orientation in most of life is a wonderful thing, uh, but this business of these, uh, the external pressures, you hate to give up on a goal. You told somebody you were going to be there. And, it, and, the, and I think the biggest risk factor in all of aviation is right here between the ears, and it's your a lack of willingness to give up on a goal. It's just, it's just a, it's a huge risk, and that's, that's the biggest management problem we have as we do this. Because that goal orientation keeps pushing us and says, you can make it, you've got enough fuel, you're close enough, the weather's gonna be good enough, um, so the wind goal, over the mountain won't be that bad. The goal orientation tends to make us keep on going when good risk mitigation says we should change our plan. Um, now. As a community, we have come out 
with the Airman Certification Standards. And the Airman Certification Standards um, replaces the practical test standards, which were standards for a flight test. The Airman Certification Standards are really standards to be a pilot. And uh, for the very first time now, when we uh, evaluate pilots, we require them to demonstrate their ability to identify and mitigate risk. And so this vocabulary <laughs> is changing. We're going to take a little uh, a look at a graph in a little bit to see the results of that. Um, the Airman Certification Standards uh, are incorporating this risk management, and they are the controlling guidance for everything a pilot is required to know consider and do, and they are also the standards that, 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 that we're going to use in the FA handbooks. The handbooks reflect the Airman certification standards, not the other way around. People write the handbooks based on what's in the Airman, in the Airman certification standards. So for the first time, we now have uh, uh, standards for the knowledge. The FA used to ask some terrible FA uh, knowledge test questions, and, and now we're just doing a we, we asked pilots to, to make trivial distinctions, um, and we're now asking pilots to make more substantial distinctions. We're doing a better, good, a better job on the standards for knowledge. Um, but before you go on, John, yeah. one of the points I'd like to make, because I've, I've heard this come up with flight instructors, how come we let the FAA do the ACS to us? And it's not something that was done to us as a community, and you can t speak to that. It's what the community, with the cooperation of the FAA, produced from their own concerns and what they were worried about. Well, I think, uh, in part, the Airman Certification Standards grew out of concerns about very poor questions on a knowledge test. And we uh, have been working for eight years. I've, I've been a part of it for eight years, where we've been going to uh, Washington, D.C. for four times a year and collaborating with the FAA and coming up with these standards. First, with a lot of, we had a lot of argument with each other to begin with. And as time got, uh, went on, we listened to each other better. And, uh, and, and now we have uh, uh, standards for the risk involved, managing risk, standards for knowledge. Uh, we're just doing a lot better job, and I like the Airman Certification Standards a lot. I so it's a, a community better. effort. It's nothing that was handed down yeah. to us on high right. from the FAA. And as I said earlier, now for the very first time, we're requiring applicants to identify uh, and, and, and mitigate risk and to demonstrate their ability to do that. And as a result of this, we now have a richer and expanded and a, and a better vocabulary. And we're talking about the right things. And talking about risk is the right thing. It's how, it's how you get a safe result as, as you identify risk. The, identify, the, the, the definition of, of safety is without risk or harm. And so it's this manage, managing risk is how you get safety. Uh, so these standards for risk management in the Airman Certification Standards uh, provide needed guidance to instructors and evaluate, uh, evaluators. And uh, we convert formally subjective areas into objective ones, actually give standards for them. Uh, and we're establishing risk management as a habitual process. So, and as if you're an evaluator, uh, uh, an examiner on a, on a practical test, you don't 
want to see them do exactly the way to mitigate risk because every situation is different. But you, what you want to do is, and what you want to see is their ability to habitually manage risk. Do they have a habit of risk management? Do they have a process that they go through? And this process is what you can help your learning pilots with to get that down. You know, a lot of people say that you can't train attitudes. No, but you can train habits and habits then change attitudes. Habits so, are easier to teach and easier to evaluate than attitudes. And as John says, habits then change those attitudes. And examples of some of the aviation habits that, that we all have in the community are, are pre-flights, meticulously going over the aircraft, inspecting it before we take it up in the air, using checklists, fastening seat belts, checking the flight controls, uh, and many, many, many more. And the point is that risk management is just another habit, a very important habit, that will serve pilots well once they learn it well for the rest of their flying career. And the best way to teach those risk management habits, we believe, and the FAA believes, is through scenario-based training. Scenario-based training is the ideal way for a learning pilot to develop the habits of maintaining situational awareness and active risk identification, figuring out what the risks are out there and what... Uh, how they need to mitigate that, let's, what they need to do. Let's look at the results of all of this. Okay, why don't you do this, This John? is a GA fatal accident rate, fatalities per 100,000 hours. These are the years down at the bottom, and this is the fatal accident rate. And you'll notice that about 2014, there's an inflection point in this curve. All of a sudden, everything got better. And that's when we started doing scenario-based training and airman certification standards. That's when we changed our vocabulary to talk about risk. And I think it's made a huge difference and saved a lot of lives. So I think I think this has made a huge difference. And I think we're doing good things all together. It, it's a cause for optimism. Right. It's still not as good as we want but it's a lot better than it has been, and the trend looks very good. J.D., do we have some more questions to talk about? I do have some more questions. Okay. I've got a question here from Paul, a comment and a question. Uh, he says, I think these ideas are good, but way over the heads of most CFIs, and wants to know what your response would be to that. Well, I, I hope we have a better opinion of CFIs than that. Um, I think... Uh, uh, the concept of risk, if, if it's way over the head of most CFIs, Martha and I aren't explaining it right. Because uh, I, I think the idea that uh, of identifying risk and trying to come up a plan to mitigate risk is not that difficult. And, and I think what we want to do is people habitually, just like looking both ways before you cross the street, I think we want people to habitually uh, think about the risks they're about to take. And, and uh, I, I don't want to talk about go or no go. I don't think you have to quit flying or not do flights. I think you need to think about how can we go uh, with less risk? Do we go at a different time of the day? Do we, do we go a different route to avoid weather? Uh, do we uh, change airplanes to more capable? I'd like, I'd like to figure out, uh, other than go, no go, how we, how we mitigate risk. Uh, any more comments, J.D.? Yes, I've got a question from Curtis who's asking, how do PAVE and CARE cost more money? 
How did, do they? Did we say that they cost more money? I don't. I don't remember that. But well, uh, it, it's going to tie back to safety costs money. Okay. Well, safety equipment costs money. Uh, excuse us if we we didn't make that clear, John. So well, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. The cockpit voice recorders cost money. A lot of the things we the flight put in data aircraft. recorders. Right, right, right. Two engines instead of one engine. Turbine engines instead of piston engines. Uh, two crew in the cockpit. This kind of safety equipment um, adds, obviously, weight. Um, having a, a good fire extinguishing on uh, all of the engines. There are, people who, there are people who say that if you take off in a single-engine airplane, you're making a bargain with the devil. You, you're, you're taking a risk because that single engine might, might uh, quit, and you're, you're just simply taking that risk. Having a twin-engine airplane costs money. I guess that's how, um, and, and pave and care. The habit uh, of, of risk management with pave and care in and of itself doesn't cost money, but um, it might cost money, for instance, if you decide that on the trips that you regularly take, maybe you fly regularly from, let me take a local example, San Diego uh, over the mountains to Reno, Nevada. Uh, and you're doing that trip maybe a couple times a week. Um, and you decide, you look at the risks, and you say, well, I think that I need to do this in a twin rather than a single-engine airplane. Well, you have cost some money there. Well, uh, and pave and care don't directly cost they money. They don't directly But the cost results money. of the decisions you make to mitigate risk, for instance, carrying more fuel on every flight, landing with a, with a with higher fuel reserve, that costs money. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the results of the decisions you make to mitigate risk very often do. What else we have, J.D.? I've got another question here and comment from Jason, who said uh, he's worked with pilots that fly jets and have gone to the best schools in the world, but he's seen that when they leave school and they get out in the airlines and charters and everything that they're doing, they're not doing pre-flight checks, they're not using checklists, they're not doing their weight and balance and, and performance data. And his question is, how do we make that safer? How do you change people's attitudes? You change their habits is what you do. Um, and I, I'm shocked shocked under the idea that people aren't using uh, checklists and standard operating procedures. I, um, the people I see that fly turbine aircraft do use checklists and do uh, use standard operating procedures. Um, They're very careful to and, do so. In yeah. um, the turbine world, part of the way you do that is with more structure regarding um, dispatchers, uh, if there's a second pilot on board, uh, uh, creating a culture with more feedback regarding um, competence and, and compliance with, um, with the procedures. I, I know where part of this thinking may come from, is a lot of times you use a flow check, which leads you to a standard operating procedure. A checklist doesn't necessarily mean you have to look at a piece of paper. A checklist means you follow a standard operating procedure, including a flow check uh, or uh, 
uh, or, or get a piece of paper back and go back and look at it. it. It's not uh, a do list. It also, it's a checklist. But right. as you say, in a lot of turbine aircraft, there's a very set flow pattern. You start here and you move across this way and down here. And here's you, you, you know what you're looking for and you just follow that flow pattern. That, possibly that's what he's thinking about. Yeah, I don't know. But, uh, but the people I know, uh, who fly turbine aircraft are following, uh, following standard operating procedures. And, and, and those... it could be part of a flow check or it could be part of a checklist. A checklist, in, in my thinking, doesn't necessarily mean a piece of paper. You don't have to have a piece of paper. There's a lot of ways you can do it. Uh, but part of the, I think part of the point is as a community, as peers of those people, we need to not accept that behavior. We need to... Uh, to point out to them that they're not exercising good risk management and there have been some very classic nasty crashes in uh, business turbine aircraft because of the pilots not um, not doing uh, full checklists every flight. Well, people not, not checking their controls. Right, and yeah. not knowing until they reach too high a speed to stop that uh, they won't be able to rotate and get off the right, runway, right. Uh, yeah. things like that. Yeah. And in our community, we have sometimes let behavior like that slide because nobody wants to squeal, if you will, on mm -hmm. anyone else. But the problem is that behavior like that, when it leads to those kinds of dramatic uh, sensational accidents in particular, is a real damage to the entire community because of what it does regarding um, uh, the public perception of the aviation community. Martha and I fly a small jet and we go every year to get a pilot proficiency exam that's what's required for us to fly that jet and uh, we get evaluated on our crew resource management and we get evaluated on our following standard operating procedures and uh, uh, we wouldn't make it through there unless we did follow those procedures, and uh, and I think it's a good thing. I think we're far better pilots uh, for it. Uh, JD, any more comments here? I do. I've got another question here from George. Uh, he says, have flight examiners changed the way that they're evaluating student pilots uh, since the start of the ACS in 2014? I believe that they've uh, they have more guidance than they used to have in evaluating pilots. Yes, I believe so. Uh, I think it's a first statement. I believe, just from our own check rides, that all along a, a good designated pilot examiner will have been exercising some degree of risk management evaluation of uh, the applicant that is before them, but what they didn't have was good, solid um, standards. criteria, standards that they could point to and say, this person didn't have uh, a habit or an awareness or, or whatever about risk management, and what they would have to do is what any designee can do if they really want to. They'd have to find something else that they would have to that they could down the pilot on if they really didn't think that their their physical skills might mostly be there. But if what's between the ears isn't really where it should be, they didn't have any guidance and standards that technically allowed them to uh, reject a pilot on that basis. And now, 
they've got that. And, and that's a huge improvement. And uh, I've gotten quite a bit of feedback because I go to DPE meetings here in San Diego from DPEs that they like. Designated that, that, pilot examiners. Right. I think most people here would know that. that. That they like having the criteria and the leg to stand on when they get people that they think just really don't think about, they're not situationally aware and they don't think about what's going on out there. They're, they're physically good, but, but as far as the, their environment, they're just uh, not aware. Well, I, th I think what we are doing is we're changing the focus on evaluating pilots. It used to be we evaluated the practical test standards were focused on the, uh, the pilots' skill, physical skills and handling of the aircraft. Now we're uh, focusing more on is this pilot truly ready to be pilot in command of this aircraft are they are they ahead of the aircraft are they are they identifying the risks and are they coming up with mitigation strategies for the risk would would you want your family flying with them uh, if they were the pilot in command and i think that's what our focus is and now and the kind of mitigation strategies we're talking about john touched on some of this is if you've got a particular trip and 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 you look at it with the PAVE checklist, um, and, and things are not adding up very well, you don't have to necessarily just flat out cancel the trip. You can modify it. Maybe you go a day earlier. Maybe uh, you take a different airplane if you've got a couple of alternatives that you could take. Maybe you change your route. Maybe you put in a fuel stop that you maybe didn't really have to have, just to make sure that you've got plenty of alternatives when you get to the other end, particularly if you're going to have to contend with uh, weather or busy uh, airspace and so on. There, there was, um, uh, about a month ago, there was a uh, Teterboro Airport got shut down because one of the airplanes landing there had a gear collapse right at the intersection of their two runways where they crossed each other, shut the whole airport down for about two hours. So, you know, do you have alternatives for things like that? In other words, not just for weather, but for, for other eventualities. Let's talk about why people might not mitigate risks. There's, there's two groups of people who might not, when they figured out there's a risk, might not mitigate that risk. One group, I don't really know how to deal with this group, is people who are thrill seekers. They, they actually love risk. They seek out risk. It makes them feel, uh, uh, I guess, important. They have fun. They enjoy risk. It's going to be hard to get those people to give up on risk, to mitigate the risk. The second group is most of us here together today, uh, we're, we're people who are movers and shakers in our community. We get things done. Uh, we just like to, to uh, we're goal oriented. We're goal oriented. We we want to. We're used to. We're in a habit of completing what we set out to do, and it's hard to make yourself give up on completing what you set out to do. And why why we don't do this is that EQ thing. There's always a trade off uh, between uh, uh, achieving something or accomplishing something and risk. And and particularly in an airplane, every time you get in an airplane, there's a trade off between. Uh, accomplishing what you want to do and risk and 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 your emotional 
uh, way you deal with giving up on things, your kind of your maturity, or modifying things, just changing de things, determine, determines whether or not you're willing to to make a change in what you would like to have, uh, like we'd like to accomplish. So there's always that trade-off there, and and so the, as as if you were evaluating a pilot, and you want to know. Uh, are they going to be trustworthy and reliable? You'd have to know how are they about just these tr this trade-off between uh, achieving something and risk. And they're, they're, they, you have to make that trade-off every time you fly an aircraft. And so as an evaluator, you'd be very interested in that trade-off and, and what do we have to worry about. J.D., do we have any update on those earlier poll numbers? I do, Martha. We're currently up to 198 uh, uh, respondents on the poll, and out of that, 133 have responded yes, which is 67%. Who knows someone personally who was killed in a general aviation aircraft accident? Wow, isn't that? We can do better than that, folks, and we, we need to do better than that. And so how do we do better? Well, you are the right people. You're a bunch of flight instructors, and we are imploring you exercise leadership. And what we want you to do is get pilots, teach pilots who learn how to develop the, the habit of identifying the risks of flight and mitigating those risks. And we would like you to be to encourage pilots to be introspective about what might make them resistant to mitigating risk. What about their personalities would make them resistant to mitigating risk? So we encourage you, we, we beg of you, let's change these numbers. This is unacceptable. We can't allow this to go on. Uh, it threatens the future of so our community. We, please exercise leadership. The future of our community depends on it. And while you're at it, if you're not already a member of NAFI, join NAFI. It's one of the greatest things you can do. This sense of community ties us all together and fixes these kinds of problems. Your leadership is an important part of this. Please join NAFI and participate in this. All you have to do is go to NAFI.org, join. You'll have a fabulous uh, mentoring program there, fabulous companionship, helping you to work with your learning pilots and to help shape the future of our community. Thank you very much for joining us tonight, folks. I hope you exercise leadership and change our community. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye.